is January 10th, 2017 in Auckland, New Zealand, and we're looking at motivating our children to engage in a variety of devotional service. So, Shula Prabhupada, can you all hear me? Yes. Is that okay? Um, maybe I should sit more forward here. I'm going to just kind of move the whole operation a little bit. Fall around. What? It's not led by Captain the Mountain. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Srila Prabhupada uh, wrote a letter to Aniruddha, not our Aniruddha in Melbourne, of course, uh, on March 7, 1972, where he said, whatever the elder members are doing, the children should do if possible. And, of course, that was the general mood of societies until very recently. You know, if we look at the world societies, that children did what their parents were doing and children from a very young age like when Prabhupada asked Yamuna to make a medium soft dough and she said well what, what kind of medium soft dough and, and Prabhupada looked at her and he said you know in India the five year old girls all know how to make a medium soft dough so from our perspective in the, in the modern world in a western country and you do not have to keep children totally quiet and be completely in anxiety about keeping cho- children totally quiet in a seminar that's about children. Okay, just... Anybody here, if you're bothered by children, you are in the wrong seminar. <laughs> there was probably a different seminar you meant to attend in a different part of the property. Uh, so we see, you know, Krishna's pastimes, where Krishna's taking care of the calves when he's three and four years old. And again, this is like, you know, somebody would call social services on us. (laughs) If you had three and four-year-old children going out in the forest all day, taking care of the calves without adult supervision by a river, and there were tigers in the forest in those days, in Rindavan, and of course there were all kinds of shape-shifting wizards and monsters as well, although Krishna would try to convince his mother that the coward boys were just making it up. But in any case, the, the boys were going out into the forest, and when Krishna got to be how old did he start taking care of the cows? How old was Krishna when he started taking care of the cows on Gopastami? Six. Six. So how old are you? Nine. Nine. And how old are you? Three. Three. Oh, okay. <laughs> How old are you? Seven. So could you imagine giving her in charge of the cows? You know, cows. And giving her in charge of the calves. I mean, this would be... Really, we, really would be we really would be reported. 
you still see in, in some more traditional societies this engaging the children in what the parents are doing. And I saw this when I was in Indonesia, not in Bali, but um, in Sumatra, we have a farm there called Gidanagari Baru. And it's very easy for those devotees to live simply because they grew up living that way and their parents and grandparents lived that way. So they simply reverted to what, the way they were brought up. But the children there regularly just run around doing whatever with zero adult supervision, which just kind of shocked me. You know, three, four-year-old children just taking a gigantic knife and cutting up a jackfruit. Big jackfruit, as big as a huge watermelon, you know, and they're three-year-old children having this anyway. I, I, I didn't interfere because that was what was going on, and parents would walk past and look at them and keep walking. So I just thought, okay, I guess that's what they do. But the, the little children, three, four, five years old, had responsibilities. And certainly the children by eight, nine, ten had responsibilities. So again, in, in our modern society, we think this is really odd. We kind of think that people are not ready for responsibilities. It keeps getting higher and higher, the age. You know, it wasn't that long ago that most people got married sometime between 14 and, and 22, 23. 25, if you were 25 and not married, that was, you know, especially a girl. If it was a woman who was 25 and not married, everybody was, was all upset about it. Even 22, 23. I think, I think Shiva Ram got, Marsh got married as a teenager. I know um, Bhakti Vinod Thakur got married at 14. Gandhi got married at 13. And... Um, I have a friend in North Carolina, in Duleka. She got married and she was 14. So that was the, the common thing in, in the world. But now we have this idea that, well, you should finish your university and then you should get a job when you're you know, 22, 23. And if you don't do anything responsible until you're 22, 23, that's completely fine, isn't it? Right? And then you have what's happened nowadays among the educated people in India is they don't want their kids to do anything, any kind of responsible work until they finish their master's degree. So you have that, you know, my kid just has to study. And all they want their kids to do is study. Yes, you run into this kind of thing? I'm sure you do with this, any of you who work with the school here, you run into this. Where especially the Indian, educated Indian families, our kids just have to study and study and study and study and study and study. And when they finish studying, they study some more and then they study some more. I mean, I had a, a devotee family from Singapore that complained to me that their 15-year-old daughter didn't have enough homework. And I said, well, what's, what's your evidence that she doesn't have enough homework? And the father said, well, she's able to go to sleep at 10 o'clock at night. So obviously you're not giving her enough homework. So we have this kind of mood that until you're at least 21, 22, 23, that your only business should be playing and studying. And maybe, maybe you do a few household chores here and there, but you really don't have any kind of responsibility. So this is a very, very recent mindset in human history. It's something that just didn't exist at all before industrialization. I mean, maybe in some very wealthy families where the kids didn't have any, any kind of responsibility. But that was about it. So what we're trying to do is, obviously we can't do all of the details. I know when we were in uh, London... 
my granddaughter Tarani was told, well, you really can't do any service here at the temple because it would be in violation of the child labor laws. Because <laughs> I, like, I require wherever we go that she does some service. And uh, she said, you know, Grandma, it's really hard. She said, they told me, well, you can do it for one day if you don't tell anybody. She couldn't even make vases or something. I thought the, these laws meant to protect the, the children with, with good intentions end up keeping them from actually taking responsibility. So we might think about why it is, and we're going to discuss this a little bit more um, on Saturday, so I don't want to get into it too much today. But why is it so important for the children to do some kind of meaningful work? And it's interesting, Krishnananda and I were going over uh, today the school's mission and vision statement. And we were looking at Wisdom, respect, and joy. I, I was very impressed how the just it's still in the process, but looking at that each child has their own talents and their own abilities, and when they get to use those in service, they're naturally going to feel joy. What we were talking about is wisdom is knowing who you are, knowing what your talents are. Respect is actually having the space to be who you are. And joy is what happens when you are who you are. And that's true ultimately with our swarup. And it's true even in, our, in material terms. That we feel joy whenever we're doing something according to our nature. Some of you may be familiar with uh, Daniel Pink. So he's written a book and, and done a nice video on what makes people happy. And he's talked about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. You know, in my thesis, I looked at the same kind of thing. What motivates people to be happy in their job? And I came up with four principles, which are very simple, similar. But this concept that, who am I? What, what is my nature? What do I love to do? And then to do that for something greater than yourself. With a sense of mastery, with, with a sense of expertise. And when we're in that kind of a situation where I'm really being who I am for something greater than my own immediate satisfaction with a sense of expertise, then I become very happy. And it's interesting that even atheists, if they're doing that for the good of society, something that's bigger than themselves. Uh, Prabhupada writes about how materialistic varnashram is where you're doing things for the service of the Lord as a universal form. You know, doing something for the good of the earth and the ecology and the universe and trying to be in harmony with creation. And this is the, the basic principle of Varnashram. Oh. Seems okay now, no? Yeah. That's babies for you. One minute ecstatic, one minute devastated. So this is also our basic principle. It's on both levels of service, on the level of our material nature, our material personality, and ultimately on the level of our spiritual personality. And this is how we feel happy, all of us. If I'm able to use my talents, my abilities, my nature... To do, to do something that's better than myself, more than myself, that's serving something greater than myself, to a level of expertise. And of course, the, more, the best more than myself is Krishna. 
if I do something for my family, I'll be happier than if I'm just doing it for myself. If I do something for my community, you know, as Prabhupada's nectar devotion, it keeps expanding. But ultimately, that's for Krishna. So if we don't engage our children in a variety of service, frankly, they will not be happy. Children are not going to be, I mean, little, little children, obviously. You know, there's not much that she can do. But once we get past the very, very, very little children stage, we want to do something. Have you all noticed even two- and three-year-old children want to be helpful? <laughs> are, you, are you giving a, a nice illustration of my point? <laughs> You just look at that. Okay, yeah. Okay, there we, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. We worked this out beforehand. <laughs> this was all scripted. So it's it's just it's an it's a natural drive in in even a very young child. You know that I want to be helpful. I want to do something where I'm making a contribution, and I want to do something where I'm making a contribution to something greater than me. And also where I'm doing it to a level of expertise. No, that's all right. Oh, you took that. Oh, that you can put up here, maybe. If you can manage to get it out of his hand. Krishna tries to get us out of illusion. That's all right. You want to put it up here so it's at least a little out of view. Especially it's pink, you know. It's really interesting. When I first saw it, I thought it was a little toy car. So those are the, the areas that we want to look at. You know, what, what are our child's, what's our child's nature? What's their propensity? What do they like to do? And then if we can match that to something that's a service and help them to achieve it to an area, to a level of expertise. So those, those are our three guiding principles. Who am I? How can I use this for a greater purpose to a level of mastery and expertise? Now, I must say that a lot of times the service we engage the children in is basically something just to keep them quiet so we can do something that we consider valuable. Yes? When I was first engaged in, in watching children, I was watching the children not for the sake of the children, but I was watching the children so the parents could do something important. I found that very disheartening and unencouraging. It's fine, just, it's fine. Oh. Oh. That's not fun. No. But that's good. Yes, thank you. But there's nothing yet to erase on Should I give you something to erase? Oh, not with that one, because that's yours. All right, here we go. Do you think you could erase that? That would help me out if you erase that. Can you erase that? There you go. Very good. So it, it was very discouraging for me thinking I'm watching these kids because watching the kids has no value, but if I don't watch the kids, the parent can't do something of value. And it, it basically said, you know, taking care of the kids has no value at all. And I see we often do that 
with the kids themselves. You know, we give the kids, oh, here, just color a picture just so you can be quiet, and I can attend to what I want to attend to. Now, I'm not putting down coloring pictures, but if that's the only kind of service we have the kids do, you understand? I, I, I go to temples sometimes where they have on display at a Sunday feast what the kids have been doing in their Sunday school. And the vast majority of the time, it's something that doesn't really have a value to the community. I mean, again, I'm not saying that, that it's bad or it's wrong, but it's generally boring to everybody but the parents. Are like excruciatingly boring. And, and the children, they can get some sense that, of satisfaction that they made a display about Lord Ramachandra or something like that. But it's not, it really isn't making a contribution. And you can, you know, at a certain point, the kids start understanding that the adults in the community and even the rest of the children in the community don't really care if they've done this. Whereas when they do things that really affects other people, like sometimes some of the dramas, if they're done well, if they're not just something thrown together, something that really uplifts and affects the community, the children feel very inspired. So this is, it's, it's a kind of thing where if we want our children to be happy in Krishna consciousness, if we want them to feel a part of our devotee community, if we want them just to be happy psychologically, well, that's there for him to do. So you just... <laughs> you can do it if you want to. I put it there for him if he wanted to raise it. I won't steal his service. Don't steal his service, yes. He's probably forgotten all about it, but if he, if he remembers it again... And now I'd also like us to kind of think out of the box. I think many times when we think about what can a kid do, we say, well, nothing. Because everything's too difficult or too dangerous for them. But again, a lot of that way of thinking is a, is a culturally induced modern mindset rather than reality. And... You know, it, it may, we may not be able to get entirely out of our cultural constructed mindset, but at least if we can move out of it a little bit, that maybe there's a lot of things that kids can do that we don't normally think of as something that kids can do. Now, I, I feel really uh, very, very blessed that my husband and I kind of stumbled onto these principles out of necessity and circumstance rather than out of study. So my husband ran a business and we both ran a gurukul and both of those were in our home. So my husband's business was downstairs and our gurukul was upstairs. And you end up in situations where you simply need some help with something and the only person around is your kid. You don't really plan that. But, you know, the only person around is a four-year-old. And you need some help with something. And so you simply ask the four-year-old because that's who's there. And you very quickly discover that your four-year-old likes to help and can be trained to help and, and really gets a, a, a sense of, you know, I think a good sense of pride that, oh, I'm doing something that's valuable. And it wasn't until uh, quite a while after we'd been doing that that Jagadish, who was the Minister of Education, specifically asked me, would you please research 
what simple societies and religious societies like the Amish or whatever, what do they do to integrate their children into their society? And when I, I did probably about four years of research, and one of the things that I came up with is, oh, they have the kids do meaningful adult service from a very young age. So that, you know, by the time a girl was 10 or 12 years old, she could cook for 150 people. Well, because, like, the Amish don't have a church. They rotate having a church at people's homes. And every home has a, a big room where everybody can gather. And when the church is at your house for that Sunday, you cook for 150 people. You know, and, and so they, they learn how to do that. So what I, I'd like us to get a little bit out of the box here. No, that's not Dada. Well, sort of, kind of. <laughs> In, in a very ultimate sense, yes. <laughs> Maybe you can first do it in writing, and then I'll write on the board. Oh, did I take away your service? I'm sorry, I'll put it back here for you. There you go. I'll write on the board again in a few minutes. And then you can erase everything just as I write it, so that would be an interesting experience. So I think, why don't we try to do it first, first on a paper, I think, instead of on the board would be a better idea. And... Uh, if you want to work on your own, that's fine. If you want to work with one other person or two or three or whatever, not more than four. And if you can make a list of what needs to be done. Now, I want you to think out of the box in two directions. I want you to think out of the box both in terms of what you think, what we normally think that kids can or cannot do. And I also want you to try to think out of the box in terms of not only what's currently needing to be done, or what's currently being done, but what nobody's doing at all. Are there services that could be done for Lord Chaitanya's Sankirtan movement that right now aren't even being done? So a very simple example, our younger son, when he was seven, started selling school supplies to the Gurukul kids. And of course he needed some help from his father, but you know nobody was doing that. It wasn't that he helped with someone else's existing business. You follow what I'm saying? He just said, oh, that would be a cool thing to do. And so he would get pencils and erasers and, and things like that and sell it to the kids. And so that may, are there ways that we could spread Lord Chaitanya's mission that nobody's doing? Or that nobody's really doing well, that we wish we had somebody involved? So don't worry about if you think of something that you say, well, this is impossible. I'd rather we have stuff, take it as like a brainstorming session. And I'd rather that we have things that are impossible than that we don't have enough things. Okay? So if we could take maybe five, ten minutes even. Make a list of what services our kids could possibly do. And think out of the box both in terms of what we think, oh, the children couldn't possibly do that. They wouldn't possibly be able to do that. And also think out of the box in terms of, well... What services are being done at New Varshana right now? Because there might be other things that, that nobody's doing or that aren't being done that much of that somebody could also do. I mean, another thing that same son of mine did when he was older, I think about 13, is he made temple songbooks. There weren't, I mean, I asked the other day for my Manashiksha class, I said, Dharma Sechibu, are there any temple songbooks? He said, no, there aren't any. So it was the same way. At Nugoloka, there weren't any songbooks, so there were just a handful and they were all falling apart. 
And it was uh, actually my son Keshavar with another devotee, Sanatan. And the two of them, they know, they picked out what songs they wanted to have. They did all the layout. Keshavar was just 13. And it was something that he did on his own. I mean, him and Sanatan. It wasn't like, you know, you have a regular service of garland making and a regular service of flower picking that's going on. So you can also think, are there things that we could use in the community or use for the preaching that nobody's doing? We have one, um, one boy in Hawaii. He's, I guess he's, I think he just turned 15. But he's developed several successful preaching businesses on his own. Yeah, just completely on his own that nobody was doing. So if you think also out of the box in that direction, both what do you think kids are capable of and also, you know, we can have a list. Well, these are the services we need to cover today at, at New Varshana. But are there other things? Are there things that could be done on the property that nobody's doing? Are there things that could be done as far as preaching to the public that nobody's doing? Is that fair? Does anybody want to share something that they've discussed? Yes. I'm going out and doing preaching programs. Okay. In general too. So general preaching programs. Could be to all different audiences, but this is a general concept. Okay. Actually, one of the most amazing preaching experiences that I had. Uh, three times I gave a class to Southern Baptist Christian ministers, if any of you don't know what that is. Heavy, heavy duty born-agains who were in a graduate program getting their master's degrees and they had to study a course in world religions basically so they'd become better missionaries. You understand? And uh, they, you know... I did it three times and one time I brought my students with me and the students led a bhajan and we always got most of the ministers to chant but when the kids were leading everybody chanted with great enthusiasm and then the kids answered questions at the end so instead of just having them ask questions of me I also had them ask questions of the kids the kids went around probably like 8 to 16 year old okay something else Temple Magazine School Magazine with a Okay. Contribute events and information. Yeah. Information. Yeah. The Temple is School Magazine. Okay, some other ideas? Yeah. Gar- gardening and then selling some of the produce so they can learn about business. Gardening and selling. I know at Bhaktivedanta Manor every Sunday, in the, you know, according to the season. There's produce from the gardens that's, that's up for sale. Yeah? They can make jewelry and they can also go out and choose which crystals they want and then they can make necklaces and bracelets for the Or for the DVs here. So making jewelry, making jewelry. It can also be expanded into business if they, they can sell it to Okay, for the deities, and also for sale. 
And this could also include all the aspects, not just making the jewelry, but even part of the design and the shopping and so yeah, forth and so on. That would be really nice. I mean, when I first joined ISKCON, every single Sunday we had a little skit. It wasn't a big, fancy production, but every Sunday we had a little skit. Uh, one of the things, uh, as I've been traveling, my granddaughter is a bright mountain dancer, but she's always performed as part of a group, and she always performed with some, you know, adult, her teacher, organizing everything. And we're traveling with just, you know, we're not traveling with a lot of stuff, so she doesn't have the costumes with her or anything like that. But I don't remember where it started, she can remember. But we were someplace on a festival, and she said, Grandma, I want to dance for the festival. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm busy. If you want to arrange it, arrange it. And so she arranged it. She got the music. You know, she went around and borrowed stuff from people to kind of cobble together a costume and put together bells, and she talked to the authorities and set the whole thing up, and she did it. And she ended up doing it, I don't know, five or six times at least as, as we traveled. And she just takes responsibility for it. I mean, of course, she, she just turned 15, 14, but still, a 14-year-old, to take that kind of responsibility to put on a performance. One of the performances was in front of 1,000 people. You know, and, and sometimes she messed up, like she didn't do a proper sound check first and you know, to scurry around. But it, that was a learning exercise, and I should point that out too, you know, that you don't necessarily have to be hovering all, all the time to make sure that they never do any mistake. They can also learn from getting it wrong. You know, so yeah, something with the performing arts, I mean, I'm sure especially some of the kids, you know, 10, 12, like that could put together some sort of a program regularly and younger kids with an adult but the kids could take a lot of responsibility they could take responsibility to write the scripts um, my grandson Janu who I brought to Auckland quite some time ago maybe some of you remember that he wrote how old was he? six I think six and he wrote a script you know we had to do a little work on it but not that much and it was performed at the temple Script by John. <laughs> okay, some other. They can use their creative skills like drawing, painting for uh, our festivals and for. So, festival decorations? Yeah. <coughs> I've been to some temples where that's the jurisdiction of the kids. By the way, if you've ever been to Mayapur, the elephant procession is like 90% kids. Yes? It's 90% kids. So that, that really impressed me that a solid, essential part of the program in Mayapur was almost entirely run by the kids. Now, also in Mayapur, every morning they have the kids recite the Shikshastika. So it's a standard part of the morning program for the temple, and it's done by the kids. That, that belongs to the kids. Yes? Um, thinking about um, trade, trade skills, like practical 
building repairs, things like that. Especially for those uh, various trade skills, painting, repair, yeah. um, building things, finishing work. And those are really good things for kids to know, and not to be sexist about it, but I would say we still think primarily boys, although some girls are into that stuff. I mean, my granddaughter, Padma, built her own house. Actually built her own house. She went out in the woods, and she cut down the trees and the branches, and she put it together, and she had a plan, and she built the thing. She also helped her parents build their house. And they actually they paid her to help build the house. So I think that's a, it's useful in general in life, even if you don't go into the trades yourself. It's really useful because most of us are going to live in some sort of shelter. Most of us aren't going to live under a tree. So it's nice if you know how to fix your plumbing and how to put out down tiles and yes. Plus, it's th these are things that every temple and every community always needs. Okay. Some others. Yeah. Okay, different fundraisers. Now, that's something that you find that children are engaged in, even in our modern Western culture. That seems to be an acceptable thing for kids to do. You know, selling Girl Scout cookies or doing a bake sale for your school. Or that, that's, that's one of the few very socially acceptable ways where kids can do something that's useful for the community. Okay, some other ideas. Yes? Just cleaning. Cleaning. It's not on the next scale, but you know, they actually like it. Some kids really like it. Um, in order for kids to really like cleaning, they, they definitely have to be with adults who really like cleaning, and there's got to be some fun aspect to it. Maybe like polishing the silver and that kind of thing. Okay, some other ideas. Yes? Gee-wick circumstantial necessity and it wasn't until years later that we realized that we had stumbled upon a real secret to success in raising children and uh, with my oldest son and his wife they had ten children and she doesn't particularly like to cook she's just really started in the last year or so she says Mati G will be happy that I'm starting to like cooking I'm like that's really good <laughs> but because she doesn't like to cook as soon as her kids were old enough to cook she engaged them in cooking you know, and uh, I know another family of eight children, and the mother does all the cooking because she loves to cook, and the kids never get the opportunities. I thought, well, it's got, there's always a bright side to everything. So, I mean, my daughter-in-law cooks one breakfast a week and one lunch a week. And the older kids, they cover, and, you know, the kids start when they're about eight. When they're about eight, they make breakfast, 
just very simple, like porridge. And then muffins, and of course they need some help with the, you know, the stove and all that. But, I mean, pretty soon they can make a basic breakfast of porridge and fruit without any help. And then once they're about 11 or 12, they start cooking lunch. They start cooking the main meal. And then some of them get really into it. Some of them get very creative about it. I mean, some of them, they just do the... We have one of them that just does... What does he do? Chili or burritos. <laughs> But some of them get into a lot of really creative. <coughs> yes. Um, Public prasad and distribution. It would be amazing if a school could prepare um, prasadam and then take it in to this to another school and distribute it. To, especially okay. to some schools in South Auckland, the kids don't have lunches and things like that. And the kids, could, we could have the kids engage. And that's yeah. that's another thing that is very socially acceptable for. Kids helping with food distribution to those who are needy. Some other ideas. Somebody back here who didn't say anything yet. Yes. I have a little who's like 21, but um, what she does, um, she gets from internet the recipes and then manipulates it cooking for Krishna. Ah. Yeah, she changes the recipes. She changes the recipes. Okay, so like adapting things from the internet for service. Okay. Yes? Some sort of community service. For example, I'm just thinking about, um, I saw this one video sometime back about um, some teenage boy that, you know, his mum was fed up with him just kicking around the house and he said, just go and like, find someone's lawn to mow. Ah. And, uh, you know, do it, he was doing it as a, as a service for the community and, and he loved it so much he just started doing it all the time and getting his friends all involved. Oh, wow. Now it's this whole thing, and then they ended up getting a crowdfunding scheme and helping all these disadvantaged kids in the neighborhood to plug into that project and it was like a whole big amazing kind of you <laughs> found your service again <laughs> look at that <laughs> yes you go, go for it <laughs> <laughs> it's fine <laughs> okay so helping people in the community Yes. <coughs> Visiting old people's homes. Oh, okay. So visiting the elderly. I mean, you might think about things in the school that you could have the kids help with if you're not already doing that kind of thing. So the kids, you know, some of the older kids can sometimes be assistant teachers, and as we all know, if there's not too big of a gap in age, the teaching children learns more than the taught children. You'll always learn more when you teach something. So if, if you have just, if it's really peer tutoring, you know, when you have a 12-year-old teaching a 6-year-old, a 12-year-old doesn't learn that much. They learn a lot about teaching. <laughs> they don't learn that much about the subject. But if you have a 6-year-old teaching a 7-year-old, or a 7-year-old teaching a 6-year-old, then the 7-year-old is going to learn more about the subject also. So that's another thing is also um, tutoring. My, um, my brother-in-law ran away from home when he was seven years old. His family lived in Yemen. His father was a rabbi, and he heard about Israel as if it was the kingdom of God. 
So when he was seven, he decided that he was going to run away from home and go to Israel. And so he did, but it took him three years to get from Yemen to Israel, kind of hitching rides and being snuck across borders and things like that. And the way that he lived was by tutoring younger children. So from the time he was seven till he was ten, that's how he maintained himself. He basically bartered. So he would tutor younger children, and that way people gave him food for the place to stay. I think in addition to babysitting, we could talk about, um, do you have a nursery going on here? Do you have any preschool that's close on here? Uh, it kind of, sort of kind of looks to me like you might <laughs> want to think about that. Okay, it, it looks to me like there might be a need for that. And that's the kind of thing that older kids can also help with. You know? And they don't even have to be that much older to be assistants with that. And so not just babysitting, but actually learning how to teach the, the, the kids and engaging with the younger children. Yeah. Receptionist services. Okay, that you want somewhere probably at least to <coughs> Like at school, they can answer the phone. Yeah, so I'd say it wants them at least 12 to do that, but yeah. Some kind of greeter. You can have a younger child be a greeter at the temple, say for the Sunday program. Um, one, one research that's been done in ISKCON is that in a lot of temples, nobody ever says hello to the guests. <laughs> you know, no one answers the temple phone, nobody says hello to the guests. And you don't have a greeter here that I could see on Sunday. So you could have a table with some kids, probably one adult and some kids, and some way of greeting the guests, you know, oh, hello, Hare Krishna, is this your first time here? And maybe a little welcome packet or... You know, a flower, a sweet, something like that to greet people. So you don't just have, you know, mostly on Sunday, it's your Indian congregation. They come, they take darshan, they give a donation, either money or a bag of rice. They get their blessings from the deities, they offer their basinses, and they leave. So we're not really, am I correct? Some, some churches are doing that. At greeting the guests. But that's something we can engage, you know, I would say even quite young children and probably six and up even in greeting the guests. We have, um, if any of you have seen our, our Learn to Read books, I didn't think of this till just now, but one of the, that's one of the topics, Mr. and Mrs. Trish. It's how Sita and her mother are working in the temple shop and some guest comes. And Sita's mother's busy, so Sita goes and greets the guests. And she shows them the deities and she gets them a book and... Yeah. Ooh. Being an MC, being the master of ceremonies, introducing a program. Okay, there's there's a lot more than this. Yeah. Online preaching. Yes, definitely online preaching. Um, learning things about web design. I mean, I have one of my granddaughters now, professional web designer, from having started started out doing that 
I mean, she does most of the paid work she does is for devotees. But she started out just doing it, you know, as was needed to be done for different projects. And I know kids who become expert videographers and... So putting together... I mean, anybody can put something together on the Internet now. It doesn't take much money. You know what I'm saying? It's something that it's available. It's not... You don't need to be a particular age to do it. Some, some other thoughts? You have to be different the same thing. Technically. <laughs> in, in reality, no, but technically... Any other ideas? I mean, obviously just cooking. Yeah, cooking in general. And, and cooking can expand, not just, you know, learning like cake decorating. You know, there's all different directions you can go in, in cooking. And having kids become expert in various areas of cooking. Well, it's interesting about paying people. It's what what we want to what we want to know when we're doing something is that it's valued. We want to know that what we're doing is valued. That's one of the main criteria for being satisfied with what we do, that somebody values it. Now, when you're functioning at a very high level, the only person you care about valuing it is? Krishna. And if nobody else values it, you don't care. So when, when you're functioning at that level, when you don't depend even slightly on the acknowledgments from other jivas, then those things are all irrelevant. But if we're not functioning on that level, it's good to have some tangible evidence that what we're doing is valued. Now, what I see with kids is when you pay them something, what you're really communicating to them is this is valuable in the adult world. Now, if the kid's just doing it for the money, that may be a problem because then you don't have the right mentality. But if, it, if the function of the money is... This is valued in the adult world. If that's see, money in and of itself is not. I don't want to go too far afield, but this this is this is my this is what I did my thesis on. So money in and of itself is not a motivator. Money money only motivates you if you're completely impoverished. Once you're not impoverished, money does not bring some kind of satisfaction in life. It just doesn't. Like over a certain pay level, more money doesn't make you happier at all. And over just, once your baseline needs are met, money doesn't motivate you to feel happy. It doesn't motivate you to do a better job. Although you may be working because you need the money. In other words, you couldn't work without getting paid, but getting paid isn't the reason you're working. Does that make sense? You know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the devotees who work in the school, if they weren't getting paid, they couldn't work in the school because they couldn't put in that number of hours and that number amount of energy without being maintained. But I'm also sure that the majority of people who work in the school are not working there because of the money. 
They're working there because they want to work. As a matter of fact, they're working there because they want to work there. And if they were independently wealthy and didn't need the money, that would, it wouldn't make any difference. They would still work there. They wouldn't quit the job if they didn't need the money. So it just depends on what the money, what money is communicating to somebody. I mean, I know a few years ago I was asked by a very prominent ISCOM leader to put together a, um, a seminar. And it took me four months of work to put this seminar together. Altogether, the final material took me 100 hours just in and of itself to put that together. And after, you know, four months of research and gathering and then actually making the materials, the teacher materials, the student materials, the presentation was 100 hours. When I finished the whole thing, I was told, oh, we decided that we're not going to have you teach this. So I was a little disturbed. You know, I was definitely a little disturbed. And, and I told this devotee, I said, well, you should know that you don't own what I produced. You know, it doesn't belong to you. And so I'm going to go and teach it myself or give it to other people. I said, you should just be aware that you don't own this. I'm going to give it to other people to teach as they see fit, and I'm going to go teach it. At this point, this devotee screamed at me and said, I guess we should have had a contract. And I said, well, I guess we should have. And when I got off the phone after being screamed at, I thought, if they had paid me, or I wouldn't have done it for pay because as Ivana Presta, I don't do things for pay. But I thought if they had paid me, it wouldn't have upset me so much if they hadn't used it. Because if they had paid me, the paying me would have indicated that they valued it to some extent. And when they neither paid me nor used it, then I really felt like, hey, you, you didn't at all value my time and my energy and my thought and anything. And I basically decided I was never going to do anything that the Lord asked me to do ever again, which I haven't. So it, it was interesting when I thought about pay. you follow what I'm saying? You know, if, I thought if, if they had paid me, and if they would have had to pay me a lot for that amount of time and, and what I produced. I mean, they would have had to pay me like $50,000 for that. But I thought if they had paid me $50,000 and then said we're not going to use it, then I would have thought, well, that's your loss. But I wouldn't have felt offended. Does that make sense? You know, but, but when, they, when they didn't show in any way whatsoever that they valued the very work they asked me to do, I, I actually felt offended. So I, I think it can be like that with the children, that it can be a way that, oh, adults get paid. I'm being valued as an adult. I mean, my own feeling on this in general is that I think we have a problem in our Hare Krishna movement that we are very happy to pay non-devotees to do things and we will not pay devotees to do the very same thing. We'll ask a devotee to do something for free and if we can't find a devotee to do it for free, we'll go and pay a lot of money to a non-devotee to do that. And, and I think that that's something very odd. So, I mean, this is a much bigger discussion. But if you look at, at, at groups, if you look at, say, the Mormons or the Orthodox Jews, what they do is they try to keep money circulating in their community. So just a, a little thought. 
No, I, I do see that it's very disadvantageous for people to do deity service and temple service on a salary. But that is just a bad idea. But I also see that people need to live. And, and the way my suggestion for that is that we should encourage people who come to the temple to give donations directly to the people who work full-time for the deities. If I just give all my money to the temple, then the temple has to give money to the people who are serving the deities. There's no way to get around it. And if those people have fixed expenses, you have to give them a fixed income. You can't have somebody have fixed expenses doing full-time service for the temple and not give them a fixed income. It doesn't work. It's impossible. Then you're never going to get full-time dedicated temple people. Then you're only going to get all part-time people. And that's another way to do things. Like in Houston, everybody has a job that has nothing to do with preaching, and then they come and volunteer and nobody gets paid. But that's kind of a different model. So the traditional system was when people came to the temple, they didn't just give a donation to the temple, they also gave a donation to the Pujaris. You know, they brought cloth and they brought food. You understand? They say sacrifices without remuneration to the priestess in the mode of ignorance. I was reading that just before I came in. It's right there in the Bhagavad Gita. And one of the things, I can't remember it's Kansaharanyakashipu. Particularly, he said, stop all sacrifices where there's remuneration to the priests. So, that's kind of it. We, we'd have to have a different culture in this to do that. But as far as jobs within the community, it would be really, really nice. I mean, devotees want to work for other devotees and they want to do things for the community, but they often can't because we expect everybody to do things for free. Yes, does that make sense? And then we end up hiring, I mean, I just think it's absurd. You know, I'll pay a non-devotee $150 for, to do something, but I want the devotee to work for nothing, or I want the devotee to do it for $20. And I get offended if the devotee won't do it for $20. So that, that's a deep subject. I don't think it's something we can settle in the next like, minute or two. But I think if it's, if it's something you normally would pay somebody to do, and if the kid is doing it at a level of quality that you would normally pay somebody to do, then pay the kid, even if they're only seven. Does, does that make sense to everybody? You know, it, if it's something I would pay somebody to do anyway, and if what they're doing is of the level that I would pay for, pay for. So if I would pay for, you know, a catering service, and I would pay some adult devotee to make cupcakes for my kid's birthday, and a nine-year-old makes cupcakes for my kid's birthday, as that's what they're doing as their business, pay them for it. And if it's the kind of thing we don't generally pay people for, if there's a, then think of how we can communicate in some way that this is a valuable service. Because very few of us are at this spiritual level where we can psychologically survive long-term if we don't think that any other humans ever value what we're doing. It's extremely difficult for us. It takes, it, that takes a very, very high level of spiritual realization to function on that platform all the time. 
um, related to this topic. What about, I'll just give an example and you can comment on it. Um, when you have put all your clothes away in your drawer, then you can play a computer game. Can you comment on that? Approach. That's not really relevant, is it? Or can you make it relevant? Well, relevant in the sense that we're engaging kids. Maybe they're um, cleaning the kitchen for us. Or oh, something. to do a service and like then that? When they've done it, then they have the right to um, you know, do something. Well, in that. this sense, um, just like my grandkids who travel with me, I say you have to come at least to deity greeting every day. You have to do your homeschool work on the road. And any time we stay in a, in a temple... You have to do at least three hours of service at that temple. But I never put it as, you know, after you do those things, then you can go play a computer game. I, I never put it in those terms, although maybe they understand it like that. But that's not how I put it. The way I put it is, we are here at a at a community. They're giving up. They're not only giving a place for me to stay. They're giving a place for you to stay. They're not only feeding me. They're feeding you. You know, in some places they're paying for your ticket, and you can't just come to a place and take. You have to give. You, know, you, you can't come with the mentality of being a taker. You have to have the mentality of being a giver. So it is true that when they've done all that, they're basically free. But I, I don't put it in that terms. Because if, I think if you put it in that terms, then your attitude towards what you're doing is not right. You know, it, 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 it ends up being the wrong thing, and you're going to do your job poorly. You know? This is the old quandary, do I, if I'm paying somebody also, do you pay them by the job or by the hour? It's that kind of quandary. You know, so you can say, as soon as you get that, as soon as you get your job done, you can do something. They're going to try to do their job as, in the shortest possible time to the lowest possible standard of quality. So then they can go do what they really want to do, and the whole time they're just resentful that I'm being forced to do this so I can do what I really want to do. So I, I think it, it needs to be a different mood. As far as service we do in the house, it, it needs to be the mood that this is, you're being taken care of, you, you need to give. That life isn't just about taking, that life's, life's about giving. But it also should be, which is what I want to go to now, is doing something that the kid really likes to do. I mean, you can't always do that. You know, we have certain services and certain things that everybody has to do whether you like them or not. You know, I like having a clean house. I don't necessarily like really cleaning the toilets. I mean, I may like it in terms of doing it for Krishna, but it's not like, wow, I get to clean the toilets. Maybe some people don't like that. It's never been me. But mostly we want to try to engage our kids in things that are in accord with their own nature. So that's what I want to look at for the rest of the time. Is <coughs> really thinking about the kids' nature. Now we have, I think I have it on your sheet also. You know, we have what Armstrong identified as the seven intelligences. And is somebody really good with words? Are they really good with pictures? Are they really good with mass and logic? Are they really good with interpersonal relationships? Are they really good with intrapersonal relationships? Because you also want to try to match service to your child's proclivity. You know, I mean, some kids are really going to like a service 
where they're just in a room by themselves or with one other person. And other kids are going to like a service where they're working with 100 people. Right? And, and something that matches them. And some kids love to do artsy, craftsy things, and some kids hate doing artsy, craftsy things. You know, it, it just something that, that fits them. I remember in Melbourne, few years ago, there was this eight-year-old boy that was the assistant temple treasurer. Plus, he went out and booked distribution. I don't remember this kid's name. But, you know, he loved doing accounting. So, what is it that matches what your kid likes to do? You know, so we have this list of linguistic, logical, mathematical, spatial, musical, body, kinesthetic, interpersonal, and intrapersonal. So, okay, sure, you know, let your kid help with making demons. Okay, that's, that's great. And let them, you know, they can pick some flowers out of the garden and whatever. But also you want to look at what kind of person are they? What is their nature? In addition to these sort of things, you can look at are they fast-paced or slow-paced? which relates to outgoing and reserved. Which also relates to, do they like a lot of novelty? Or do they like things, um, or do they like status quo? You know, some people like to have a, a job or a service or a life where every day at 4 o'clock they do this. And other people like to have a life where they don't know what they're going to do every day. I remember in Dijuna Swami, in one of his um, diary entries, he talked about how they had been given a travel voucher. Right? It's not a ticket, it's a voucher used to, to get a ticket. And so he and Sri Pallad had gone to the airport with their travel voucher. And the, the lady at the airline said, so where are you flying to today? And they looked at each other and said, oh, where are we flying to? <laughs> so for a lot of people, a life like that would just be stress. You know, I don't even know where I'm going to today. It would just be high stress. For other people, it would be high excitement. So one, one devotee girl I know, Dakshin, um, she lives that kind of a life. She's always traveling, always doing new things, always doing different things. You know, some people like that kind of novelty and, and still, and other people say, like, mm -hmm. so, you know, what kind of person is your kid? Are they going to like to do a service where they get step-by-step -step instructions and it's what they do and, or, you know, what would you call it? Um, abstract or concrete thinkers what we call random or lateral or sequential. You know, again, some kids, they want to have instructions. Adults also, you know, some adults, they want to have instructions. What do I do? Step by step by step instructions. This is the kind, this is how you make jewelry. Do it like this. And then they'll follow those instructions and make something beautiful. And other kids hate that kind of stuff. You know, they, they just absolutely hate it. 
and they want to figure out things their own way, right? Yeah. So, again, you want to try to match the service to your child's personality. Are they more people-oriented or are they more task-oriented? Are they more big picture? Or are they more details? Of course, all of us exist on a continuum with these things. None of us are only detail-oriented. None of us are only slow-paced. But we have a, a tendency. Right? And there's so many different ways of, of understanding personality styles. That's a whole other seminar. But how do you know what your kid's nature is? Whatever you haven't been able to fix. <laughs> Because with a child, they don't always exhibit their nature in a, um, how shall we say, positive and, and useful way, right? They don't know how to. Even adults don't always do that, what to speak of children. So what happens with children is whatever their nature is, they will do it. And they'll, they'll do it like breathing. And it's something that you're not able to fix, that no amount of punishment, rewards, or very creative, non-punishment, non-reward systems, <laughs> or anything that you can come up with in any book by anybody or any course by anybody gets this thing out of your kid. And it's a thing that probably sometimes you find very, very annoying because they're doing it in a way that's not particularly helpful. Those, that's the real key to your kid's nature, what you can't get rid of, what you can't talk them out of, what you can't preach them out of, what you can't teach them out of, what you can't reward them out of, what you can't punish them out of, what you can't direct them out of, what you can't train them out of. It's just there. And that's basically our nature. By the way, a lot of what our nature is are things we're not even aware that we're doing. And as we were talking about pay, it's things we would do even if we weren't paid. You know, we may love to get paid for things that we love, we may appreciate if we get paid for things that we love, but the things that we love to do that are our nature, we will, we will do them anyway. We will do them if anybody pays us or not. We'll do them if anybody asks us or not. We'll do them if they're appropriate or not. You know, we, we, I mean, at least Krishna says this in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, you're not going to be able to repress your nature. When Krishna's talking about what will repression accomplish, he's not talking about sense control. He's talking about one's nature. And he basically says to Arjuna, look, you're going to do your nature anyway. Your choices are do it for me or do it for illusion. So one of our responsibilities as parents is to try to find out what our child's nature is and help the child to see their nature in a positive light. That's very difficult if the child has a nature that's radically different from our own. Because we generally, unless we have a self-esteem problem, we usually like our nature and so if somebody has a very opposite nature we tend to see it as a weakness does this make sense to everybody you know if, if I'm a very reserved cautious person then I'm going to see an outgoing risk taker as a fool right? and if I'm an outgoing risk taker I'm going to see a reserved cautious person as a coward so we tend to pejoratively label people who have opposite strengths to ours. We tend not even to see them as a strength. We tend to see them as a, as a weakness. 
because our tendency, Atmavan Manyate Jagat, we have a tendency to see our own strengths and our own talents as good, generally. Some people are not, some people are just the opposite. Some people hate the way they are and they're, all they ever want to do is be something else. That's another kind of problem. But most of us are not like that. Most of us basically like who we are. And we think that, that our, we, we don't see the downsides of our own strengths usually. We usually see our strengths have only upsides, which of course is completely ridiculous. And we see that opposite strengths are only weaknesses. Does this make sense to everybody? You know, if I'm a very diplomatic person, then I'm going to say, yes, diplomacy is very good, you don't offend people, and you get along better with people. And I don't see that sometimes diplomacy is going to drive people crazy. And then I'll see a very blunt person as, oh, this is a very crude and rude person. You you all follow this? Yes? So if your child has a very opposite nature to you, and sometimes we're blessed with such children, then then you really want to be extra careful. I mean, I know a kid whose mother is a very reserved, cautious, conservative, status quo, task-oriented person. And somehow or other, she got a daughter who's just the opposite. You know, an outgoing, risk-taking, people-oriented, experimenting person. Fun-loving you know, basically like a party girl. So you have the, the mother's practically like, you know, a backroom accountant. And the, and the daughter's just a, a party girl. And the mother said to her daughter, you know, you're not going to be able to be Krishna conscious like this. You're too frivolous. And I thought, why can't she go all over the world doing parties? We have Krishna conscious parties. What in the world is wrong with that? You know, be a Bhakti Tirta Swami and an Indra Swami. Why do you have to be, you know? And, and the girl came to me. She was one of my students. She said, Ramila, I have tried for years to change my personality, and I can't do it, so I guess I can't be a devotee. But her mother had equated being a devotee with being a particular type of mundane personality, which is it, it's very sad because... You can be a devotee as any sort of mundane personality. It doesn't matter. You can be a devotee if you stay in one temple for 45 years and do exactly the same service every day for 45 years. And you can be a devotee if you're sleeping in a different bed every night preaching all over the world. You know? I mean, you can be a devotee if you're handling the money very, money very carefully and you can be a devotee if you're preaching in Saudi Arabia as a high risk taker. I mean, this, this concept that we have to be a particular kind of person materially to be a devotee. So you want to help your child to understand their talents, which is a little challenging. But your kid's talents are not necessarily going to look to you like a talent. They may look to you like a problem. Seriously. It really may may appear to you as a problem. It may appear to you as something you're trying to fix. And their talent, if it's very different from yours, may also not appear to you as a talent. It may appear to you again as some sort of a problem. So it requires a little broadness of vision to think, okay, this thing my kid does that's not like me, that doesn't fit into my boxes of how a person should be, and that I have been unable to fix, and that really seems to be causing a difficulty, what is it good for? Does it have some utility? You probably remember I brought my grandson Vikram here, right? And I don't know, Krishna isn't here anymore, but... I'm pretty sure that what he did, he was helping in the school 
And what he would do at the recess time was he engaged games. You remember that? He engaged games with all 80 of the kids playing together, all different ages. And he came back, he said, Grandma, they told me no one had ever done that before. <laughs> and basically what that kid is really good at is knowing what everybody is doing. He's got like this long antenna out. And he knows what everybody is doing and he can coordinate it. But in his family, it gets him into trouble all the time. You know, he hears many times a day, mind your own business, Vikram. 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 You know, and, and the poor kid was getting this, this idea that there was something wrong with this. And just my saying to him, look, there's a lot of people who have to be very aware of what everybody's doing and mind everybody's business. I said, if you're a teacher of 30 kids in the classroom, you better be aware of what everybody's doing. Right? If you're running some kind of business, some kind of company, some kind of temple, you're running, you have to know what everybody's doing. But it wasn't until he started being in situations where people were happy with him for doing that that he started seeing himself in another light. Where people were praising him for the very things that his, you know, his brothers and sisters were always getting on his case about. So you want to try to find what is their nature and get them a service, not just what needs to be done, please, not just what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. No, not just this service needs to be done, nobody's doing it here, you do it. That's fine here and there, but mostly what are your talents, what are your abilities, what do you shine at? What, what's something that you do naturally anyway, like breathing? And maybe we didn't already have a service in mind. Then we create one for that. We help the kid create some service, create some project that really matches with them. And sometimes it may be a matter of trying them out in different things. And when we do that for the kids, you won't be able to stop them from doing service. You know, when, when we find some place where there's a match between something that's needed and appreciated and is for the greater good and something that we really relish becoming expert at, you, you can't stop us from doing it. You have to practically lock us up to stop us from doing it, isn't it? So that's ultimately, this will be our experience with realizing our swarup in Krishna Leela. Ultimately, that's, that's, it will unfold in a similar way. And I see that engaging our temporary and illusory but what we have to work with, material identity in this way, gives us the concept, oh, that's what spiritual life is, finding who I am and using that for the service of Krishna in a way that's actually valuable and and meaningful and that I can develop some level of expertise. So it is after 8. Again, we could discuss this quite a bit more. We'll be discussing this topic also... um, I think it's on the 14th. This will be one of the, of the four topics. We won't get into it in this much depth, and we'll be approaching it from a little bit different angle. We're looking at it then. Is there anything anybody wanted to bring up before we close? For the, okay? Yes. When a mother or a father is a devotee and they have a another parent is not. Even like at the retreat, I met this lady from Melbourne and she was telling me that her son, 10 year old son, is losing interest and her husband is a devotee. So, for 
we're going to the previous, you know, the first lecture, the, would you say it's realistic to raise your child as conscious if it's only one parent motivating that child? Probably depends a lot on what, how the other parent views Krishna consciousness. It's definitely harder if the other, if the non-devotee parent um, doesn't see any value in Krishna consciousness at all. What to speak of if they act, if they actively oppose it. So if the non-devotee parent is actively opposing it, it's very difficult. And if the non-devotee parent sees no value at all, it's also difficult. Because that, that one parent is not going to be inclined to take any of the family's time or resources or energy. You follow? You know, if going to the temple is easy, then they might not mind. But if going to the temple is difficult, if it requires any kind of austerity and the non-devotee parent sees no value in it, then it's a lot harder for the devotee parent. You know, but I do know of, of cases where the kids become very nice devotees if the non-devotee parent is at least, um, how would you say, if they at least have some appreciation that this is something that my spouse is into and this is, you know, my kids appreciate something from my spouse. I mean, there's, I don't think they have any children, but there's a, an interesting book called Saffron Cross, which is about um, a marriage between a devotee and a, and a, and a non-devotee Christian. And the Christian is the wife, and she's a Christian minister. So she's a Christian minister, and before they got married, the husband was a brahmachari. So, you know, they market the book as a marriage between a former Hindu monk and a, and a Christian minister. And the book details just their journey as an interfaith couple. It doesn't, again, talk about their children. And it talks about how they, they really try to appreciate the other person's faith and how the other person's faith help build, helps build their own faith. But if you have a problem where one of the couples is really opposed, then that's very, very, very difficult. You know, either if they're opposed because they have another religion and they think their religion is the only way, or if they're really opposed because they're an atheist. So then it is, it is extremely, extremely difficult. And then I would say, what we'll talk about on the 14th, it's, it's going to be... Um, just probably one or two of those. We talk about four things then. But one or two of those can be strong enough. And then you hope that when the kid grows up that at least they maybe become inquisitive. At least if you have it open and available to them, you have, you know, again, it depends how oppositional the spouse is. Can you have Prabhupada's books in your house? Can you chant in your house? You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, her children are, all, are grown up, but I mean, I know one devotee, she can't chant in her house. She can't tell her husband she's going to the temple. She's an older Indian woman, and there's, you know, she wouldn't even dream of divorcing her husband. That's not even, that's, that's not anywhere on her spectrum of things you think about. But it's been very difficult for her. I mean, sometimes he knows, you know, he's not a dummy. So he may know that my wife is lying to me about what she's doing but it's sort of a little clandestine. I mean, he once met with me and he was, this Krishna consciousness is stealing my wife and she's supposed to be following her husband. And, you know, it was kind of heavy. 
everything. She was one of the biggest book distributors. And what she would do is on her lunch break, she would go to the parks and distribute books without telling her husband what she was doing. But that would be really hard if there were kids because she had to keep her spiritual life practically completely hidden from her husband. So in a case like that, you're mostly looking at the first thing we'll talk about on the 14th, which is establishing a relationship of love and trust. And then really one day the kid may say, hey, you know, what are you doing? I'd like to find out more about what you're doing. But hopefully the situation isn't that oppositional. So, you know, does, does, the, does the other, does a non-devotee parent, do they let you bring your kid, the kid to the temple? You know, but, you know what I'm saying? It's such an individual kind of thing. But certainly, I've seen cases here. I've seen it go both ways. Yeah, but I've seen, I've seen everything. I've seen fam- I mean, I know of one family where the husband and wife both initiated disciples of Srila Prabhupada, but they had really fallen away. They weren't even following the principles anymore. I mean, they weren't eating meat, but they were eating eggs. They were eating eggs. They were, you know, they were gambling. I mean, they were drinking wine, everything. And their kid, I think when he was 19, what he told me was that anytime he'd ask his father any kind of philosophical question about anything, his father would just say, all the answers are in the Bhagavad Gita. So they weren't practicing anything, but that was his father's response. <laughs> and so when he was 19, he decided to pick up the Bhagavad Gita. And then he brought his parents back to Christian consciousness, and he started visiting the local temple. <laughs> Don't ask me who this is, because these are people you know. But, you know, he started visiting the local temple, and, and he eventually brought his parents back to Christian consciousness. So things can work in all kinds of funny ways. And I mean, I know another, another example where also the parents left. I don't think they were eating meat or anything, but they left. But they were still favorable. The only thing they did was tell their kids Krishna stories every night. That was the only thing they kept of their Krishna consciousness. That was it. And from that, all four of their kids became... I think they're all four of them are initiated. Pretty sure all four are initiated. And again, the parents came back to being practicing devotees through the kids. And then you have examples where the parents are both good devotees and the kids end up being who knows what. I mean, I, I know one example. It's a kind of a sad example. One, one kid where um, he took initiation and uh, his mother died of cancer while he was a practicing brahmachari. And then he had a, a difficulty with his spiritual master. And he left Krishna consciousness, and he's gone further and further and further and further out. So now he considers that he was in a cult, and he was brainwashed, and he makes a lot of anti-Krishna conscious and anti-religion propaganda. You know, so it's you've seen sometimes, but that happened to him as an adult. He got you know he had some something that happened to him in his twenties. He just, and his guru is still a practicing devotee in good standing, but there was some, something that went on. You know, you can find every variety of, of everything possible. You know, we're, we're individual beings. It's hard to pinpoint something. But the four things that we'll look at, which, which include what we talked about today when we talked about the last time, 
are the kind of things that really make it much more likely, even just one of them, that your child will be interested in, in practicing Krishna consciousness. Is that all right for a non-answer answer? But those, those are the kind of things that you really work with each... That's, it's an individual thing. Where in what way is the one person a devotee? In what way is the other person not a devotee? How does that... How does that work? Is there at least some support? Or is there technically support, but they're always undermining what you're doing? So I know one family like that where the wife is not even a vegetarian. And, you know, her, her mood was, sure, you can have your own religion. You know, that's fine. I don't mind. And you can teach the children your own religion. But she, she never helps... You know, so if your husband wants to do something Krishna conscious with the kids, he has to do it completely on his own. You follow? If he wants to take the kids throughout the actress, she'll go someplace else for the day. If he wants to buy the kids Krishna conscious books, she's not going to read them to the kids. He has to read them to the kids. So she doesn't oppose him, but she also doesn't... She won't be involved at all. She won't be supportive at all. So that's... It, it makes it very awkward for him. You know, that he almost feels like when he's teaching his kids about Krishna, he almost feels like he's going against his wife to do it. He doesn't want to disturb his relationship with his wife. So okay. Thank you very much. Shri Prabhupada Kijai.